Welcome to Behavior Babes Podcast, presented by me, Dr. Amanda Kelly. Aloha, and thank you for joining me today. We have Dr. Jessica Minahan joining us for the podcast. Hi, Jessica. Hi, Amanda. How are you? Oh, I'm doing so good, and it's so exciting to talk to you again. For those who've been listening to the show for a while, they likely remember your episode now a couple years ago and for anyone who's new to the show i'm excited that they're going to get to hear from you as well why don't we begin by having you give an update or an introduction of yourself for our listeners great well i'm a behavior analyst uh, based in massachusetts but uh travel all over the world of course and um i am my special area of interest is um working with kids who where their behavior is fueled by mental health, because when anxiety, depression, trauma um, is underlying behavior, I think it gets very complicated. And um, a lot of our go-to strategies, um, even within ABA, can be anxiety-provoking if we're not mindful. Um, And so I have found that to be a really interesting journey as to... um, you know, join what's best practice for mental health um, for children and then also within an ABA framework. And so um, I continue to learn to do that. Um, I'm in schools weekly um, all over the world, um, trying to help educators in schools uh, meet the needs of kids with an anxiety trauma-informed lens. Such important work that you're doing and I recognize that it's an area where more, I will say, professionals, not just behavior analysts, are definitely gravitating towards. I also, though, find your expertise so enlightening and informative because this is work you've been doing for 15 plus years. I mean, I think that's how long ago we met each other. If I if I were to grab out a calculator and look back, um, how you know what was the landscape like for you, or how did you? Um, decide to go in that direction and and what did that look like for you as you were trying to gain more information? Well, I was always gravitated to the kids who um, were confusing everybody. So when I first started, people were getting better at understanding autism, uh, not not where we are now, but um, it was uh, people that was a little tiny bit more visible of a disability than someone with trauma or anxiety looks like they're willfully, um, <clears throat> you know, um, doing certain things. And it's, I, I have found that there's more misunderstanding about anxiety and trauma and how that impacts behavior than understanding. And um, so I always gravitated to that group. That group also in my experience tends to be a little more prone to confusing people um strategies that work with a lot of kids can even exacerbate things and so my kids tended to be a little more intense um with their behaviors um so i kind of was always drawn to the kids who were a little bit in crisis and um struggling and and the common denominator there was this blind spot we have in in behavior in general which is um, the anxiety trauma fueling this situation. 
80% of kids with autism have clinically significant anxiety, according to the literature, which I actually, I don't know about you, but I think that's a low number. I'm not sure. I'm not sure yeah. percent of kids with autism don't have anxiety. I mean, it's hard to have autism in the world, of course. 50% have depression. What's interesting is when I review programming for kids with autism, not to mention other kids with social emotional disability, um, the mental health is not being addressed. A lot of times, um, uh, you know, it's not being addressed at all. And yet, when you survey kids with autism and their parents, which is studies that have been repeated over decades, uh, they report that anxiety is more disabling to the kid's life than the autism. So anxiety is why I can't join uh, the soccer team. Anxiety is why I need the smaller classroom. So um, I have found that the more I understand uh, the impact of anxiety, um, on behavior and learning, it's been so effective with such a large number of kids, um, especially in situations where things um, have been tried and are unhelpful. So um, I think, you know, another thing to note is, is the trauma research about kids with autism, because I know a lot of um, listeners are, are in the, uh, working with kids with autism, but um, trauma is, uh, you know, um, commonly or can autism can be a common misdiagnosis of trauma. So when kids experience trauma, they can, it can mimic autism where, you know, lack of eye contact, self-stimulatory behavior, repetitive behavior, withdrawn behavior. So um, when we tend to see those characteristics, often uh, the diagnosis of autism is given, but that's another thing to just be aware of that it can actually be a misdiagnosis of trauma. Um, so I think the anxiety trauma piece especially as kids age, you know, kids in middle school, high school, or as anxiety is really leading the train um, in the behavior. And so I have found once I start learning about anxiety and trauma and what's best practice, um, uh, it's been such a game changer to me. So um, yeah, so I've been really excited to share that with others. And you've done so, so effectively for the amount of time that we've known one another I've often attended trainings from you, or it's it's been a while since I've uh, been out of the state, but felt like every time you were able to impart new knowledge and also connect with new audience members. I just found what you said to be something I didn't realize. I didn't realize that that some of the presentations of trauma could actually be a misdiagnosis. Often what I had been more kind of clued into was the comorbidity of those diagnoses as well. So thank you for, um, for teaching me something new here. <laughs> um, how, when, when we're thinking about things like anxiety and trauma, you, you were mentioning some of those like behavioral characteristics that can kind of look similar across different diagnoses. Um, how, how do you see ways in which it's just blatantly being missed when you're talking about like treatment plans or reviewing some programming? In what ways could it be incorporated and i know that you have so many more things to say about that and strategies but just what's that first signal or thing you're looking for as you're looking through these plans well there are two things one um is i think in in general we have to be careful in the world of behavior supports that we are not in just incentivizing or or using you know reactive um methods to shape behavior um, and that we're teaching um, fundamental behavior, 
you know, uh, mandatory behavioral skills, like skills that they need to behave well is what I mean. So, um, for example, um, that's a philosophical um, disadvantage if we think that behavior can be incentivized, you know, as enlarged. And I know you're in schools too. So a lot of times I'll come in, work dis disengagement has really increased since the pandemic. Uh, there's certain behaviors and that's one, a big one. Kids are, uh, you know, really disengaging in work. So what's interesting is um, I'll go into a group and say, well, does he, you know, when you're looking at skills, um, I'll say, well, does he initiate? And, you know, the teacher and the team will say, no, never. So my next question is, how have we taught him to initiate? So if I pulled him aside and said, what three strategies are helping you um, initiate when something looks hard, would the student have an answer for me? And usually I get radio silence on that because we have been telling him to start his work or we tell kids to persist, try your best buddy, right? Everyone says, try your best. That's really different than teaching them specific persistent skills. So one big blind spot I think is we, um, forget that uh, behaviors are skills and we don't want to keep asking a kid to start work if uh, we haven't taught them how to get there. And uh, that's a missing piece for me. Incentives do not teach skills. So you can say to a kid, get this done and you get a good grade. And that doesn't necessarily budge the situation if the kid doesn't know how, right? So the classic example is if you say, speak in French and I'll give you $50. Um, if the kid can't speak in French, even if they really want the $50, they can't get there. So um, what I think is really misunderstood, and I wish in teacher prep programs, teachers get no mental health training and almost no behavior, you know, maybe one course in behavior management in a sort of a generic way. So um, what I would, you know, wish people had more of the neuropsych background, because when anxiety goes up, certain skills go down. And that's misunderstood. So you get an inconsistent pattern of behavior where the kid on Monday gets two gorgeous paragraphs written, Tuesday barely gets five words on a piece of paper. We didn't understand something like one, one very um, important skill that's impacted when you're anxious is um, accurate thinking, accurate or positive thinking. So when we're anxious, we think on the downside. So for example, if you're very late to a meeting and you hit a red light, um, and now you're more late and you have to wait, uh, you're not thinking happy, comforting thoughts. You're not like, wow, the sky is a perfect shade of blue. You're, uh, unfortunately, when we're in an anxious state, we think negatively. So for example, when a kid is looking at writing and they're flooded with negative, inaccurate thoughts or perceptions, like I can't do this, which is when they're not anxious, might not be the thought, but when you're anxious, you kind of uh, misassess that, your own ability, misassess the difficulty. Oh my gosh, this is so hard. And misassess how long it will take. Oh, this is going to take me forever. So when a kid is in an anxious state and defaults to inaccurate thinking and perception of the activity, by the way, you can measure thoughts. Um, and I can talk about that if that's helpful. But so in my data, um, when there's a negative thought or perception uh, and you know, prior to the disengagement, a graphic organizer is not going to help. So it's a, a big misunderstanding in, in education that um, what skills are impacted when you're anxious. And also we are not teaching ki kids skills. So you can teach kids to look at work 
and accurately perceive the difficulty. You can actually, it doesn't take actually very much time to do that. And now there, we're seeing a change in behavior because we dealt with the root cause. So if we didn't understand that when anxiety goes up, accurate thinking is impacted, we would assume the kid who wrote two paragraphs Monday and could only get two words on the paper Tuesday is lazy or unmotivated. I hear the word unmotivated quite a bit to describe kids' behavior, and that's my least favorite word. But um, I think uh, I understand why people are concluding that because they don't understand that there's actually been a skill change um, based on the level of anxiety in the kid. So, and then we don't know what those skills are and know how to teach them. So I think that's the biggest um, blind spot for me is analyzing what skill is required in the situation and then have we taught those skills and then how to teach those skills. So I think the most effective first question when you're wondering about a kid's behavior is what skills are they lacking? That's your first question. I think you're in you know, a much better situation and going towards solutions. I love that. That's very tangible. Um, something that people could just think about as a script, what skills are lacking? What skills are lacking? Um, how do we teach it? <laughs> how do we exactly. teach it? What is needed? And have we taught it? Right. And then have ask yourself. Taught it? Yeah. So for right. example, I think inaccurate thinking I keep bringing up because that's the most misunderstood of the skills. Self-regulation of course is affected. That's a little more obvious executive functioning, um, flexible thinking. There's a couple that are a little more obvious, but the inaccurate thought and perception is um, a big blind spot. So most people in the building are not trained in what to do with thoughts. So if a kid shuts down, the head goes down over some sort of assignment, um, most people, even if they knew a thought, overwhelmed thought caused that um, <clears throat> because of what they're articulating, uh, we don't know what to do with thoughts. So we're left with incentives. Come on, buddy, get your head up. So you don't have to do it for homework. Come on, buddy. Remember, you're going to earn blah, blah, blah. That doesn't really help because we didn't deal with the root cause. And so, for example, um, we give a lot of breaks in school. That's a go-to thing. So we see regulation as um, sort of uh, a couple of our go-tos for any type of dysregulation. And by the way, looking at a kid who's dysregulated, it's very hard to know what the origin of it is. It's going to look like hyperactivity could look like exhaustion. It could look like sensory or chewing on a shirt, but you don't really, you can't tell by observing what really is causing the dysregulation because um, a lot of things could manifest that way. So our go-to is movement or sensory, right? So go for a walk, um, go get a drink of water. And uh, frequent movement breaks is such a common accommodation. However, if it's an emotional uh, dysregulation, um, they're upset about something. When you say go get a drink of water, you've now left them alone to think. So I, you know, interview kids all the time on breaks and I say, you know, what are you thinking about right now? And this one kid at the waterfront was saying, oh, my, it's my little brother's birthday and mom lost her job and I don't know how to get money and just the weight of the world on him. He went back to algebra class and he looked like he had raging ADHD. He was like blurting out, rapidly talking to the kid next to him, moving so much things were falling off his desk. He definitely couldn't learn very dysregulated, but what was provoking the dysregulation or, uh, was uh, the thoughts and uh, worries that the kid was having. So with the rates of anxiety and depression and trauma in our, in our classrooms, um, a big, uh, you know, clinical uh, 
you know, fact about kids with anxiety is there's um, ruminating thoughts, negative thoughts, and this default to negative thinking. Same with depression, same with trauma. So um, there's so many kids with this issue, things like standing desks and the band around the chair and, you know, squeezy balls and stuff like that is not going to help. Standing desk is great, gives you an outlet for your energy, but if he's worried about something, the standing desk is not going to get to the root cause. So um, that's an example of how uh, our schools, we all kind of are comfortable with the way we're giving breaks, yet they're pretty ineffective when I do polls. I'll ask big groups of teachers what percentage are actually of the breaks result in a calmer kid. Um, or can they re-engage in the task after the break? It's pretty low percentages. Um, yet we keep doing it because um, we have this major blind spot on thoughts and feelings can be provoking, which you can measure, can be um, precipitating the dysregulation and so, or the underlying cause of the dysregulation. And so therefore you would want to teach them how to deal with thoughts. So for example, if we can't sleep at night, we either read a book or we watch something and that helps us because we stop thinking about the anxiety provoking thing, get anxiety down, regulation comes back up, then you get sleepy. Would you agree if you stay on the thought or thoughts, you'll stay awake. So you have to get off the origin of the dysregulation. And so I love to teach kids just like what we do at night, something called a cognitive distraction, or you could call it a thought break. The metaphor I use with kids is your brain is like a remote control. You're stuck on this channel. You have to change the channel. Um, so this is a different way of thinking. So, you know, we have a lot of calming corners in classrooms. Go back there and sit down and calm down. You know, sit on a beanbag chair with younger kids. Um, the problem there is the kid is sitting back there mad at you, ruminating about how mad they are about the situation. They don't come back calmer. In fact, can be more escalated. So um, if you teach them distracting activities, like um, you could hand them um, a hidden picture and say, try to find three footballs. I want you to change the channel, come back on a different channel. That's teaching much more of a life skill and actually um, you're, you're um, recalibrating a kid. So you're getting anxiety down, accurate thinking back up, and then you can re-engage in the activity without panicked thoughts about the activity. So, um, those are, that's just an example of where the misunderstanding of what, how anxiety impacts behavior and what's underlying behavior um, can lead us to practices that are, are not only going to be unhelpful, but even, you know, telling a kid to go for a walk, they can be ruminating about their parents' divorce the whole time. They come back worse off. So um, I think it, it, it's sort of an example, and there's several uh, work disengagement being one, you know, looking at regulation as a sensory movement problem um, is also a disadvantage where um, when we look at thoughts and perception, which is so class, you know, so uh, largely proved in the anxiety literature as the origin of the problem, it shifts our practices quite, quite a bit from what we're doing currently. And I, that's um, been a real game changer to me. I think about you saying things like find three hidden footballs and as you explain the rationale it makes a lot of sense to me and I think probably to many educators they could definitely see that perspective however if somebody were to walk into that moment they would say oh that student was doing something undesired and now you're letting them exactly. do this fun activity right there's that perception of like they're gaining something versus exactly. 
like recalibrating, like you said. Yeah, and that's a misunderstanding of the word reinforcement. We know in ABA that positive reinforcement means you add something, it's positive, and then the behavior increases. So people think I'm reinforcing, you know, the misbehavior by giving something pleasant. Um, but what you'll see in the data is that it's really a punish, positive punishment procedure where the behavior, you add the cognitive instruction and the behavior goes down. Um, so, uh, and it's just, again, you know, an ABA, when we look at reinforcement, we don't look at the internal um, state and feelings and thoughts, and we don't tend to measure those. But so when you're aware of that, it does make more sense. I've been definitely accused of being too nice where, I've, you know, I used to get paged and I'd run into the classroom where there's problems happening. And I wouldn't go over to the kid and say, do number four on this paper now. That's not how I would greet the kid. I would say, you know, if they look angry, I would start chit-chatting with them. And what I'm doing is changing the channel. And then you see the affect improves. And now you can say, let's look at this. And now they're not looking at it with catastrophic thinking. They're looking at it with more accuracy. It looks more reasonable now that anxiety is out of the picture. But when people see me do that, they aren't, you know, I've, I've been accused of being too nice before. You come in and you're nice to him, you know, what, what, why are you doing that? But um, that's a misunderstanding of uh, what the origin of, of the disengagement in that, that moment was. Um, so yeah, it's a little, a lot of it is counterintuitive. I think that's a good point. And that's why I think we shy from it. Um, but the things we're doing aren't actually working well. <laughs> a lot of times the, you know, um, we're teaching avoidance by mistake by saying, go back there and sit in the beanbag and calm down or go for a walk. We might be teaching avoidance because it certainly feels better when you walk away from the stressful thing. That does not help kids re-engage or give them a life skill. Same thing with we're, we're doing. That's why TikTok is so popular and stuff. You know, we, we look at these stupid little things on our phone and it is emotional regulation strategy. We take our mind off something. That's why most people love movies. It's the only time that you're, you know, you know, you tune out your thoughts and you can have a break. Um, so yeah, I think, I think you're right. It's very counterintuitive, but when you understand neuroscience, it's not counterintuitive. But. Right. And as you're talking about changing the channel a moment ago, I was thinking, oh, that's just like when I scroll to the next reel. So I'm glad you brought it. <laughs> to the exactly. Because I know I used to have intellectual taste before the pandemic and now I, the stupider, the better people, my friends send me the stupidest things and it really is. It does make you smile, even if you're having a really bad day, you know, it is emotionally regulating, but that's why. Right. It's that, that, that whole shifting your thoughts. And so you've talked to, you mentioned a couple of times, yes, we can measure thoughts. Talk to us about that. What does that look like in the work that you do? Well, it has to be self-reported, which there's disadvantages to that, as we all know. And um, I think there's a lot of standardized ways we can, um, you know, measure thoughts. I like that there's a trichotillomania um, uh, assessment on thoughts, which if you have time is really helpful. Um, and that's, you know, evidence-based and so forth. So um, cognitive behavior therapy is an area which has a ton and ton and ton of research on what's best practice for kids with anxiety. So um, with some kids, it's an ABC sheet, but the A is thoughts, right? So what was the thought? Then what was your behavior? Then what was it? So I have kids very similar. It is an ABC sheet, but we're talking about, um, you know, uh, uh, non-observable uh, antecedent. And um, they can, you know, a lot of my students will take uh, 
just you know uh, write out um, incidents when we're when we're you know after a fact we look at it and they can start to see patterns and thoughts and so forth. But um, and that's all database. But the uh, I think the most common is we get tons of data from kids articulating things. So we all know kids who say this is too hard. I can't do this. I'm stupid. This is stupid, right? But kids do express. So that is data for you of, of their thoughts, right? So when, and, and it's typically, I would guess when we're, we're talking about work at disengagement today, it's a lot of negative thoughts. And um, so they are giving you a lot of data, actually. We just need to be looking for it. Um, you can take um, progress data that way. Um, you know, on what's the latency of, in, of initiating, how many negative comments are they making, how do they rate it negatively. So really um, interesting strategy to help kids to look at, um, you know, work with more accuracy is to use a um, strategy called disproving. So for example, you say to the kid, how hard do you think this is going to be one through five? Of course, the kid will say five because in an anxious state, you're inaccurately assessing it. And then when it's done, finished, say, how hard was it? Almost always the number goes down, right? And you, and if you do that about seven times and you have two columns with before the number's high, after on the right-hand column, uh, the left-hand column is before, the right-hand column is after, and you show them seven times now, you've the left, you know, before you say it was a five and then after it's only like a three or a two. Um, you don't have to do much else. You can say to the kid, huh, look at this. Um, before you think, before you start writing, you think it's a five and then after it goes much lower. Um, that's a data for you of their perceptions, but also it's, um, it helps with this strategy called disproving where they can um, see uh, evidence to the contrary. So their initial thought, it's right there on paper for them is inaccurate. And so a lot of kids will say, huh, I guess I shouldn't listen to my first, my first thought or, um, you know, I'm not thinking about this accurately. And, and a lot of kids just notice that when you do that disproving strategy. So it's part data, but also an intervention. So your verbal cue next time they can't do something to, or they're, they're disengaging in something to say, how hard do you think this is going to be? And all, all I have to do is say that. And the kid goes, oh yeah, fine. And starts initiating. <laughs> so, um, so that's a that's another one that's like a twofer. So it's data plus also um, an evidence based uh, intervention. Right, you're creating the awareness for the individual. You're teaching that life skill, and you're also getting something to measure. Back to your point a moment ago when you were talking about whether or not it's functioning as a reinforcement or a punisher. Using our technical understanding of those terms, it depends on the future effect of the behavior. Um, and so when you're looking and seeing something you want to decrease and it's going down, yes, I really appreciate how you made that distinction. Like, look, the behavior may be decreasing as a result of what looked like me being too nice um, or coming in with this distraction, but it's the outcome and it's the effect. And you were mentioning before, while teachers may be able to rattle off some of the things that we do, um, they also uh, have been pretty accurate in, in saying that they're not always that effective. And yet we continue to do them because I think in part it's it's what we were taught or what we know to do. And I say we because also my background was in elementary education prior to becoming a behavior analyst. For behavior analysts who are 
are really, you know, I think there's so much more conversation, again, not just within our profession, but in general about these topics. Um, how do they extend their scope? You know, you've mentioned already CBT, you, you've mentioned um, some other ways of blending information from other disciplines. How would you instruct or guide people who say, I'm a behavior analyst and I really want to be, I'm passionate about this and I want to be um, immersed and effective in uh, making these considerations for trauma and anxiety? Well, I think um, learning. Um, so my whole PhD was on um, mostly the biological basis of behavior and neuropsychology and, and counseling and, and that kind of thing. Because that lens um, folds nicely into ABA. Now, um, I think, uh, you know, as long as we're, we're data-based, as long as we're um, using strategies that are well-researched, um, <clears throat> then, uh, but but if, if ABA, and I did find that in my tra ABA training personally, um, you know, mental health wasn't talked about because it's hard to measure, you know, it's hard to observe. And um, so uh, yet, if you don't take, we all agree we have thoughts and feelings. I think everyone would agree with that. So not taking that into consideration for the analysis um, can be quite a disadvantage, especially with the rates of anxiety right now. Um, another term that we throw out a lot is attention seeking and the way behavior analysts use that and, and the way the general population use that, overly use that term, of course. But for example, ignoring someone who is attention seeking is very go-to strategy. But if the kid has a trauma history or, or anxiety, when you ignore someone with anxiety, the anxiety goes up and then the behavior will ramp up. We've all been in a situation, I remember years ago, I had a third grader run out of the classroom, run into my office and he was you know, swiping things off my desk and he was kicking things and it was really escalated and um, I, you know, this was when I was a baby behavior analyst and I said, okay, I'm going to wait till you're ready. And I kind of disengaged and didn't want to give, you know, feed into the attention room. And he went around and grabbed a pair of scissors out of my desk, which I thought I had locked and which I didn't. And so he had this holding the scissors. So of course I couldn't ignore that. So I go over and get away from him. Three days later, he comes running into my office, very escalated. And of course, what did he go straight for was the scissors because what I accidentally taught him there by ignoring was I'm going to ignore lower level things like sweat, swiping, swearing, but, you know, weapons will get my attention. So you have to be really careful of that. A lot of our safety protocols are to disengage when a kid's getting escalated because we overly label it as attention seeking in schools. Um, and uh, when you have an anxiety informed, trauma informed you know, you can accidentally shape kids up by doing that. So the kid, you, you kind of disengage and then they jump on the windowsill. Now we all react. We've now, unfortunately, um, you know, uh, taught them to do that to get our, our reactions. So <clears throat> the other thing, when you look at trauma and anxiety, I, I would love behavior analysts to interview kids um, more. I think that really helped me change my um, approach. So for example, I had a teacher who ignored the kid and then it kept escalating. Later, I said, what did the teacher do when you were like banging the table? And she said, she did nothing. And I said, well, why do you think she responded that way? Basically, I was trying to see her perception. So we all know behavior is communication. That's a form of communicating. So we are communicating when we ignore too. So I would love you to interview kids and see how they're 
their interpret being ignored. So no shock to you when I said to her, basically, why did the teacher ignore you? But I said, why did the teacher respond that way? She interpreted it as she didn't care. You know, she doesn't, she's happy I'm upset. I'm invisible. Mm. So when a kid has a trauma history, um, which this child did when I did the analysis, um, she had a learning history. When she cried, no one came. So when we ignore, you can be really triggering uh, trauma. And, uh, you know, triggering is not a word we use in ABA, but that would be what this from psychology, what, that, what they would say. But um, that can be, um, you know, evoking this learning history that adults don't care. There's, so it's very interesting. Um, I think attention seeking doesn't always answer it. When you say, what is he doing? He's doing it for attention or he's attention seeking. We still have another why. Well, why is he attention seeking? So attention seeing doesn't really quite answer it because we're not looking at thoughts and feelings. So when you say, why is he attention seeking? Now we get into like the root cause. And so learning history can be a big part of that. And so, um, for example, being more predictable with our, with our attention instead of ignore works better. So for example, um, saying to a kid, I'm going to be back in 10 minutes and then walk away because we tend to be more predictable when kids are doing the wrong thing than we are with the right thing. So if the kid's like doing their work and what they're supposed to be doing, they really don't know when they're gonna get attention. But if they throw a desk, they're almost immediately gonna get attention or they swear or something like that. So um, we kind of um, forget how important predictability is for some kids. And um, so, you know, uh, looking at it, in, from an anxiety trauma lens has completely changed how I, how I view attention seeking and how I go about it. So I never have to write ignore in a behavior plan because I know how to address it otherwise. So for example, if predictability is one of the um, underlying causes there, or, or that's comfort, um, a lot of kids, um, what you can say, and that's what we did with the girl who's banging the desk for, you know, to get the teacher to respond we um, had the teacher set a, a timer and say, I'm going to be back in eight minutes. And then during that eight minutes, the kid was perfectly behaved. And at the eight minute mark, she came back and said, hey, what do you think of this assignment? How was your weekend? And okay, I'm going to be back in 15 minutes. And she set the timer for 15 minutes. And then, so that works so much better than ignore. Ignore things were escalating so fast because the kid was now banging the desk, now then eventually through the desk, right? When then, then we respond to that and we're shaping kids up to the less appropriate, less safe behavior. Whereas um, when you just take a moment to dig under and, and, and think about thoughts and feelings and add that to our analysis, which you can take data on, um, we have um, a much more three-dimensional understanding of why someone is doing something without understanding thoughts and feelings we would ignore that child and it would escalate and so forth so um i i think it's it's really helpful for behavior analysts to um to learn from other professions as well because um you know it's 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 so complicated why kids are behaving in certain ways and so we want to make sure that we have as many lenses and tools in our toolbox in which to approach an assessment of a situation. Complicated behavior is for sure, especially when it's not all observable and available to us. And as you mentioned, 
Um, having to rely on self-report can be tricky, but it's also possible and not something that we as behavior analysts may often be taught to hone into and to uh, utilize its value. Um, Jessica, I've really, gosh, I'm taking pages and pages of notes, even if though it's the hundredth time we've connected. I did want to have uh, ask you one more question before we ended today. And that question is, is this with the teachers and the other professionals that you're working with as they start to see the effects and the changes um, that are being made by how they're shifting the environment does anyone ever mention to you like that it's helped them personally because as you're talking through a lot of these things you're reminding me of uh, the cognitive dissonance and things that we have uh, you have talked about before and those are strategies that uh, I've taken and they have helped have helped me. So I'm just curious, do people give you that feedback when you're working with them or um, or not so much? Uh, I definitely hear that a lot. That just, think, well, first of all, things go so much more s smoothly. And I uh, sometimes I'm asked by superintendents and, and school districts to talk specifically about self-care. My answer to that is I want teachers to be empowered with more informed strategies and a, a, a more helpful way of looking at behavior that is self-care because your whole classroom is going to go more easily right so when i pull a whole group of teachers and only they they report 10 percent of the breaks are effectively getting the kid to re-engage or whatever um we want to stop continuing to use that and shift to and think about why is that understand it better try something that's effective. Um, so I think uh, it just makes people's lives go more smoothly. And, um, and, and and that's a feedback I get a lot is, oh my gosh, that transition was so fast, right? Transitions are a big issue. And when you have a mental health perspective on transitions, it's just so different. And so, oh my gosh, that transition went so smoothly. I'm getting so much uh, learning time back. Um, when you have a kid who's uh, you know, doing a, a cognitive distraction break and actually regulated and can now look at the assignment and re-engage with that recalibrated uh, view, um, things go more smoothly as opposed to, you know, uh, you know, trying something that's, that's off the mark. And uh, so I, I definitely think it's, um, you know, be, feeling confident, feeling empowered with strategies that work for the population of kids we, we have now, specifically post-pandemic, um, is, is definitely going to reduce uh, teacher stress. And I hear that all the time. Yeah, and in a way that bubble baths and wine and massages simply won't do. You're right, you know, changing the environment and making us feel or helping teachers feel empowered uh, I just imagine it, it has to it has to go a long way. So I, I wasn't surprised by your answer. I wasn't trying to lead you up to it. I was just curious if people were sharing that feedback because the more we understand about how humans um, behave, I think the more insight we have into hopefully our own behavior as well. Um, Jessica, thank you so much for joining and for giving our listeners this wonderful treat to have you back on the show before. We head off anything coming up, any announcements, projects, websites, anything that you'd like to share. I want to give you uh, the moment to do that as well. Well, thank you. Well, um, thank you for having me uh, on my website, which is just my personal last name, JessicaMinian.com. Um, there's tons of articles and podcasts. Everything's free for you to 
to download and, and access. And um, there's uh, a link to our, our past podcast. Um, and and, and um, so if you're thinking, how, how can I, uh, you know, learn more about how thoughts are affecting behavior, um, there's lots of articles and everything has practical strategies. And um, so uh, that's, and I also uh, wrote two books, The Behavior Code and The Behavior Code Companion, which also have way more strategies. And everything combines um, mental health best practices under the, um, you know, paradigm of, of ABA and the framework of ABA. So um, it's, it's, um, if you, if you're interested in how to look at that combination, um, there's lots of resources on my website. Phenomenal. Thank you. So that is jessicaminahan.com. And for anyone who's interested in learning more about different applications of applied behavior analysis, you can do that by visiting my site at www.behaviorbrief.com.